Open with me in your Bible to Haggai. So as we come kind of to the home stretch here in our little series on the neglected prophets, we are down to the last three prophets. And the last three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, I want you to understand that they are all writing after the Jews return from captivity in Babylon. In the case of Haggai, it's about 520 B.C., So I want to put a slide up here and I want to review just a little bit of Old Testament history that helps us understand Haggai a little bit better, hopefully. And this is a, this is like a crazy short flyover, okay? So we're going to go way back to King David as a reference. He's an easy one for me to keep in mind because he's roughly around 1000 BC. So that's when David is king of Israel. It's kind of the height of, of Israel. And within two generations, things go poorly. Solomon's son really kind of wrecks things, and uh, the leadership ends up being so poor that the nation is split in two, about 930 B.C. And at that point, it gets confusing because we have Israel, which becomes the northern tribes, and we have Judah, which is the southern tribes. So we, we, we use the word Israel, and we mean lots of different things. What are we talking about? Well, at this point in history, Israel is the northern tribes, and Judah is the southern tribes. And for 200 years, these divided kingdoms, they squabble, they peck at one another, they fight. But the most important thing to understand is that they are continually disobedient to God. They continually fall into paganism, idolatry, sexual sins, all kinds of ridiculous things that are just antithetical to what Yahweh has told them to do. And so eventually because of this, and we've looked at this over the last couple of months, God punishes first the northern tribe of Israel when they're conquered by the nation of Assyria at about 722, not at about, at 722. In 722 BC, Assyria destroys the northern tribes of Israel and, uh, and they're essentially lost forever from that point on. Then the nation of Babylon rises, and if you know ancient history, it's like one kingdom comes, one falls, another comes, another falls. Babylon rises to power. They crush the Assyrians, and they begin a campaign of conquest throughout the Middle East. And in 587 BC, Babylon finally sieges and ultimately destroys Judah and Jerusalem. They tear down the temple of God, and they haul the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, off to captivity in Babylon. And then finally, around 539 BC, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians under Cyrus, and the Jews are told, you can go back to your homeland. You can return to Jerusalem and Israel. And that slow process of returning is more or less completed by about 520 BC. That's when Haggai is writing, 520 BC. So our last three minor prophets take place after the captivity in Babylon when the Jews have returned to their homeland. And that's important for us to understand because they are told repeatedly, both through the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and also the minor prophets, that their sin would lead to consequences. Their rebellion would lead to consequences, specifically to captivity and destruction. 
And God explains to them again and again and again, your captivity and your destruction is meant to instruct you to change your ways, to actually obey God, to love Him. You entered into a covenant with me, Yahweh, and you're disobedient to it. And so I'm going to do these things to bring you back to covenant faithfulness. But as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, this is fascinating. Even after being conquered, even after the destruction of Jerusalem, even after captivity, and when they finally return to their homeland, guess what happens? The Jews fail to keep their covenant promises with Yahweh. They fail again and again. Instead of learning their lesson, they slide right back into sin and disobedience. So I want you to keep this little history lesson in mind, particularly this fact that Jerusalem has laid in ruins for 70 years now as these people have returned and Haggai is now preaching in 520 BC. So they're beginning to rebuild their homeland. So I want to read Haggai together, okay? I, I realize it's long, but I think it's profitable for us to do this. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. That's the Lord's house. That's the temple. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, 
I just need to point out, isn't that great how specific God's word is about time and points in history? This is not some mythology. This is grounded in very particular points of history. The Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. I'm sorry, but the image of somebody walking around with like a rack of ribs in their coat is just kind of funny, but verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the, Lord, that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day forward, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for these chapters, these verses, for this prophecy from Haggai and just how it reminds us of your sovereign goodness and your power and the need that we have to place you first and foremost above everything else. We thank you for the little reminders that we don't need to be afraid, that you're in control, that you love to take care of your people, and that when we seek your face, things go well for us because you watch over us, that we don't need to be anxious because you're in control. So Lord, just minister to our souls by the work of your Spirit this morning as we reflect on this text. In Christ's name, amen. So the primary picture that we get from reading Haggai is that the people of God have returned and they've started making themselves very comfortable in Jerusalem again. Meanwhile, while their homes are being refurbished and rebuilt, the temple remains in a state of ruin and disrepair. The people have busied themselves about the work of renovating their homes while the house of God lies in ruins. And I really think the central idea of Haggai is found in chapter 1, verse 5, if you want to look there. The Lord says through the prophet Haggai, consider your ways. Consider your ways. In fact, that word consider or the command to consider, that comes up at least four times in Haggai. It's repeated quite often. God is commanding his people to do some self-evaluation. Last week, we talked about this idea of spiritual reform in the church. If you weren't here, I encourage you to check out our YouTube channel where you can watch that. And this is another invitation, I think, to that kind of work. God is not pleased with the actions and behaviors of his people, so he calls them to look closely at their lives and consider their ways. Now, you might think, um, well, hey, that's Israel. They kind of always screwed things up. And so that doesn't really have anything to do with me. That's just kind of Old Testament stuff. Um, maybe you don't think like that, but it's not an uncommon thought uh, in some aspect or some areas of Christianity. But I just want to point out that this same idea, it comes up in the New Testament for us to consider. We find it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. We're told, before we take communion, before we share in fellowship with Jesus Christ and at his table gathered with our brothers and sisters, we need to first examine our hearts that we don't come in, in a in a lackadaisical fashion to the table where Christ's body and blood are being served. We need to consider our ways and check our hearts to see whether we're actually living and walking in a manner that is worthy of the fellowship of the cup of Christ. Now, of course, we're not worthy of his grace. That's why it's grace, right? We don't do any work to receive grace. That's given to us freely, by God's kindness. But once we've received that grace, we are obligated to consider our ways, to see whether we are actually putting in sufficient effort to look like Jesus in the way that we live our lives. 
to not bring shame upon his name. Salvation may be free, but discipleship takes a lot of work. Maybe you've experienced that. And sin is a deceiver, leading us often to believe that we're healthy. God is pleased with us while we build our houses and his is in in shambles. And sin deceives us into believing that when in fact it's not true. So we ought to examine ourselves and our actions to see whether truly we love Christ. The second place that this comes up, consider our ways, John read it for us, is in 2 Corinthians 13. I'd love for you to flip there real quick. Keep a finger in Haggai and flip to 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? We just sang that song, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in me. The verse ends with, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Friends, if you ponder this, this is a really intense verse, isn't it? When was the last time you considered your ways and examined yourselves to test whether you were in the faith? Maybe you've never done it because you think, well, I I, I think I'm a Christian. I prayed that prayer one time and I attend church pretty faithfully. And so this verse doesn't really apply to me. But that's actually not how it works. We are called to test ourselves. And I don't want to give anybody a doubt complex. Don't misunderstand. That's not the point. I don't think that you can lose your salvation. I think I can make pretty good biblical arguments for that. But I do want to exhort us always to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Your story has not been written to the end yet. And I want to encourage you to persevere to the end. Now think about this for a second. In order for this verse to make any sense at all, there must be some noticeable difference between people who have Jesus Christ in them and people who don't. If there was no difference, you couldn't do what this verse says. You couldn't examine yourself to find any evidence or proof. And so does your life have some noticeable difference? Does your life actually look like Christ's life in you? Are there small signs of growing growth proving that sin is having less power over you over time? Are you making some progress towards greater holiness? Does your heart feel a growing sense of affection for Jesus Christ, little by little, over time? And if not, don't despair, but stop letting sin deceive you as well. If you test yourself, if you examine yourself, if you consider your ways and you go, you know what, that's actually not true of me. There is a remedy 
Turn to Christ. Stop lying to yourself. Turn to him in repentance. Tell him you trust him. And then determine to do what trust does, which is give yourself to him. Follow him. Do what he commands. Consider your ways. And then after you've considered whatever the results might be, look to Christ. Follow him. Do what he teaches is wise and good and right. Now getting back to Haggai, you can flip back there. The reason God calls his people to consider their ways is because a brief evaluation of their ways reveals they are not actually honoring God with their lives. They may be outwardly the people of God. They may be Jews. They may be living in Jerusalem. They may have Abraham as their father and circumcision as the sign of the covenant. But inwardly, they are not living to please God. They've been back in Jerusalem, some of them at least, roughly 15 years. And while their own homes are now in a place of repair and restoration, the temple remains merely a foundation slab. It's in ruins. And this, I think, gives us some insight into how we can consider our ways. How can we test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith? I want you to understand, it's actually not based on a set of moral standards, because the Pharisees had those, and they were outside. It's not based on how good we might appear to other people. It's not based on religious achievement or church-going activities. It's not based on even law-keeping. Those things may be important, but they're not the ultimate test. How can we know whether we belong to God or not? Here's my recommendation based on Haggai. Look at our priorities. Look at the things that your heart actually treasures. That's the test. I think that's the considering that we need to undergo. You can look like a moral person. You can look like a good person without having God as your top priority. That's what your identity is wrapped up up in. It's actually easy. Your heart is set on appearing good, looking moral, and so you do that because your priority is to look good and be moral. But the priority of a Christian is actually God himself. And I'm going to explain this in more detail in holiness in a minute when we get there. But the priority for Christians is God himself. Everything else falls into its rightful place under that priority. What God points out to Israel and Haggai is that their priorities are all screwed up. You are going about the wrong things. The people have placed themselves, their needs, their safety, their security, their comfort, and their happiness ahead of God. They're putting all their time and attention into things that they think are important, and they are neglecting what is important to God. And we do this, don't we? I mean, I really don't think that Christians need to spend all their waking time reading their Bibles, but I think it's a good illustration because the statistics are pretty poor about the commitment that Christians have to actually reading God's Word. So let's use it as an illustration. If we compared the amount of time in a day we spent consuming entertainment in front of a screen 
to the amount of time we spent in conversation with God in prayer or in learning about Him from what He has revealed in His Word, reading our Bibles, what would stand out as the priority? What would it look like is the priority? And please understand, it's not even about the time itself. Like, if you leave here going, I need to give more time to reading my Bible than I do to looking at my phone, you've, you've misunderstood. That, that, that is the action. It's, it, what's more significant is, is what is the desire of your heart that drives you? If we really took the time to consider our ways, what would stand out as being most important to us? And again, we talked about this in more detail last week. Maybe you need to go back and watch that message again. But if we really consider our ways, what would, what would we conclude is the true treasure of our heart? Would it be God himself or would it be something else? Now, I want you to see something because I, I think the way that change really happens is we reflect on who God is and we begin to see an incredible reality that produces the Spirit's work in our lives. Consider the gospel that we cling to. The gospel we cling to tells us that while man was busy screwing up his priorities, thinking about himself, what was God doing? God actually went to work to make mankind his priority. It's a scandal that God would make us his priority. It's a theologically difficult concept. Now, of course, he did it for his glory. We acknowledge that. But the cross shows us that God cared enough about man to make man his priority. God actually, in the cross, emptied himself, humbled himself, lowered himself as a priority to make man his priority. And if you're theologically struggling to even understand what that means, that's okay. It's a tough idea. And the beautiful thing that is, is this. If God makes us his priority, then we are free from the pressures of life to make ourselves the priority. Who's going to do a better job at taking care of you? You when you prioritize yourself over God, or God when you prioritize him over you? This is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Like I mentioned, Matthew 6, when he says, give up anxiety and worry. God loves you. He cares for you. The Jews of Haggai's day, they must have wanted to rebuild their own houses for the same reasons we would, so that we could feel safe and secure so that our children would be well cared for, so that we would have a comfortable place to live our lives. And in doing so, they neglected the house of God, leaving themselves more vulnerable than they ever could have imagined. Because their security was not in their own walls, it was in the power of God. The presence and priority of God was where their true security was. And actually, Haggai tells us that God himself was even making their lives more uncomfortable, more difficult, again, to try and teach them this lesson. 
that in prioritizing him, things would be okay. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will find its place. Now, we can add to this discussion of priorities two additional things from Haggai. First, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8. God declares, the silver is his and the gold is his. I hope you understand that God does not need gold and silver. What could he buy that he doesn't already have? What need would he have for some metal that he created with a word? This statement is not about God. It's making the point that if people keep silver and gold as their priority, they're going to lose the greater glory of God himself. The things that are precious to us must ultimately be surrendered to him, or we lose those precious things and God as well. Our kids, our career, our house, our reputation, our stuff, our spouse, our health, all of that has to be surrendered to God so that he alone is our first priority. This is said in a slightly different way in chapter 2, 10 verses, verses 10 through 19, okay? I'm not going to reread those. Um, you'll maybe remember it. God asks the priests a question a little bit like this. He says, if you take a holy object and you carry it around, does the holiness of that object spread to other things? Anybody remember the answer? No, it does not, right? But if you take something that's unclean and you carry it around and you touch it to other objects, does the defilement spread to other things that it touches? What's the answer? Yes, right? Uh, We all know this right now because of the coronavirus, don't we? If I'm healthy and free of the coronavirus... Does my health spread to you if we spend time together? Unfortunately, no, right? But if I'm sick and I hang around you, I will indeed spread that illness to you. And the point is this. In in a fallen world, sin and uncleanness spread. Dangerously so. In a deadly way. They spread easily, they spread naturally. But holiness, holiness has to come from the source. You can't become holy by hanging around at church. You can't become holy by even hanging around holy people. You can only be made holy by being personally connected to God himself the source of holiness. If you want to be holy, you have to be connected to God. And if holiness is what we want, then we have to place God first in our list of priorities because our holiness comes directly from Him and only from Him. And if we fail to stay connected to Him as the source of holiness, then the outcome is Sin and uncleanness spread in our lives because sin's like an infectious disease. 
And those are really the only two options. Either we make it a priority to be connected to God himself as the source of holiness, whereby we grow in holiness. He gives to us his holiness. Or God goes somewhere down on the list after other things we think are important. And by being out of their proper order, sin spreads and ungodliness rises to the surface. So consider your ways. Is your highest priority to be connected to God himself? To put him first, to honor him, to seek him, to follow him? Or is there something else at the top of that list of priorities? Is your life being slowly but consistently shaped by holiness because you're near to Jesus? Or are other things more important to you than Christ? Examine your heart. Test yourself. Only you can really see into the inner place of your heart to determine what's true in response to that question. Only you can look honestly and critically at what you find your heart pointing to at its treasure, as its treasure. And only you can ultimately change what your heart treasures. And so consider your ways. If your ways are not in line with the ways of Jesus, then by his power, by his grace, change. You can do that. Rebuild the temple of God in your heart that his dwelling place within you might be central to your life. I'm going to press on if that's okay. Haggai's prophecy, it centers around the rebuilding of God's temple in Jerusalem. But it deals with this deeper issue of prioritizing God first in our lives. But the rebuilding of the temple is still an important issue. So let's talk about that for a second. I think one of the most challenging things that we encounter as we read the Bible is understanding how what's going on in the Old Testament relates to what's going on in the New Testament. Ever felt like there's some pretty dramatic shifts? I think a whole bunch of theological confusion comes out from misunderstanding these these two things, the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament. So I want to look at just two more verses that I hope will help us understand how Haggai makes this work. Um, The truth is, we can't follow through with literally doing what Haggai commands here. He's commanding the people to rebuild the temple. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen. We can't rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and that's actually okay because we're not supposed to. Let's talk about this. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 5. God says he's going to respond to their work according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. It says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Do you understand that God didn't make a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt? Uh, You didn't come out of Egypt. He made a covenant with Israel. But more importantly, Jesus makes it clear in Luke 22, verse 20, that God has made a new covenant with those of us who look to Christ for salvation. It's the covenant of the blood of Christ that comes through his crucifixion. And so God no longer covenants with his people according to Sinai, the covenant of coming out of Egypt. That's the old covenant. Instead, now God is with his people in a new and much greater way. It's through the redeeming and empowering covenant of the blood of Jesus. 
That's why we take communion. This means God is no longer with his people through a temple in Jerusalem because that temple was built on the old covenant, the old promises. And we see God explain that actually right here in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9. Look there. It says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Surely the people of Israel hearing Haggai say this prophecy would have thought, we're going to build a temple that's more beautiful and more amazing than the one that the Babylonians tore down? But that's not what God had in mind, actually. What God had in mind was the glorious temple of Jesus Christ. God with us. God in human flesh. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus says that the temple is his body. That's what the temple is. And that's what Haggai is looking forward to. That even if the temple, the building itself were destroyed, God would raise up a temple forever, an eternal temple in the body of Christ. And then towards the end of John's gospel, we hear Jesus say these words to his disciples. The glory, he's praying to God the Father in front of his disciples. He says, the glory that you have given to me, Father, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That's John 17. The glory of the temple which Haggai prophecies about is not a building made of stone and wood and gold. It's the glorious incarnation of Jesus Christ, whereby God himself wears a body of flesh and blood to live and dwell among his people. John says that Christ tabernacled among us. Jesus claimed that he was the temple. He was the dwelling place of God among man. And the temple... I'm close to the end, but stick with me because I think this is the best part. I see you're laughing, Ron. It's fair. You should laugh. Think about this. The temple communicated to people that God was inaccessible. Their sins had separated them from God. There were all kinds of walls and barriers and veils and curtains and things that you had to do to wash and all this stuff simply said, you are unworthy to be near this God. But the temple of Jesus tells the world that God is accessible. The God that they could never go to is the God who has come to them. The temple of Jerusalem operated around bloody sacrifices of animals killed on a regular basis to appease the wrath of God for sin. But the temple of Christ is built upon one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, the blood he spilled to atone for sin once and forever. The old temple was stationary. It was stuck in one place. You had to travel to it to receive the blessings. But the greater temple of Jesus, it's mobile. He traveled among the people bringing the blessings of God to those who were far from God. The temple in Jerusalem communicated God is is distant from you. He's invisible. He's incomprehensible. But Christ Jesus came to show us the Father, God himself by being near and among us, tangible and present. 
The temple of the Old Covenant was a constant reminder that the people of God were horrible sinners. More atonement is necessary. You can never live up to these commands. But the greater, more glorious temple of Christ's body shows us that by his indwelling presence, we can do everything that he has commanded us to do. The old temple brought an inexpressible, weighty sense of guilt for sin. But like Haggai says in verse 9, the greater, more glorious temple of Christ, it brings peace. Peace among men. All of that's come according to this promise of Haggai. Not because the Jews rebuilt the temple, but because God himself has built the temple in the body of Christ. And the latter glory of Christ outshines the former glory like the sun outshines your cell phone when you're trying to look at it at noon on a bright day. Now one final thing. Since Christ is no longer physically present with us in the flesh, how is the glory of this temple still here? Well, Jesus said in John 17, in that verse I already read, that we have become the temple of God. The glory of God in us. The presence of God in us. Christ lives in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we have become the earthly dwelling place of God. His glory and His holiness shine out from us. When we put the priorities of God first in our lives. And so that begs a question. Do we really understand how significant the church is? Do you really understand this idea that we are the temple of the living God? His Spirit dwells in us? That we are glorious, not because of our own glory, but because of his glory in us? Is this just a place you go on Sunday morning, hoping that we'll be out of here by 11.30? Wishing that there were more donuts? Or do you really understand that when we come together as believers to worship our God, The glorious presence of Jesus Christ invades our hearts, invades our community because we are the temple of the living God. The church is supposed to be something incredibly different, otherworldly, powerful, supernatural. And I think if we really understood what God speaks through his prophet Haggai, that the latter glory of God's house will be far greater than the former, it would utterly change the way that we think about church and the body of Christ, what it means for us to gather together in the name of Jesus. Christ in us, that changes everything. So may God open our eyes to that truth as he makes himself the treasure of our hearts. Let me pray. God, forgive me for being long-winded. I'm sure you could have said it better. But we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the reminder that our priorities need to be Christ first. And we thank you for the encouragement that we can do that because of your spirit. And we thank you for your body 
the living temple of the living God. And I pray that we would see that truth, that reality manifest in our church. For Christ's sake, amen.